It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the Sharpening Report. Today, we welcome to the show my good friend and prolific best selling author, Joel Richardson. We're going to talk about his book, Sinai to Zion, which uh, deals with the untold story of the triumphant return of Jesus. And of course, it goes without saying that we're going to be using the word story, but that's not to say that it's fiction, but to understand just how this whole account, past, present, and future, is conveyed to us. Because I can already see it in the comments now. You know, it's not a story, it's true. <laughs> but uh, we got some literalists out there. But uh, anyway, so how are you doing, Joel? It's good to talk to you. Yeah, I'm doing great, man. It's good to be on with you, Josh. Excellent. Yeah, the last time last time that we did this, we talked about your uh, your your book about the location of Sinai, which you totally convinced me, uh, by the way, because I I always held to the traditional view. But then after talking to you, and then it came up in this book as well as as the location uh, and and this whole procession, it just it makes a lot of sense. Um, so. For those who might not be familiar, before I get too to ahead of our uh, discussion here, can you briefly introduce yourself and tell us what led you to want to write about this topic? So, yeah, Joel Richardson. I mean, this is, I guess, my eighth book. So a lot of people know me from my books, but I'm also an itinerant uh, teacher and minister. And uh, I also work with a few different uh, missions organizations throughout the Middle East, the underground church in the Persian-speaking world, Iran. Um, as well as uh, in Israel, um, Iraq, uh, and uh, Syria. And I mean, just the Middle East is really where my heart is at. And so um, I, I, I joke, Josh, I always say I do Bible prophecy in order to pay for my missions habit. Um, you know, my missions is where my heart is, but I also love talking about the return of Jesus. And so, yeah, I mean, I had this really interesting thing come up a few years ago where I had an opportunity to get into Saudi Arabia to visit Jebel al-Laws, this particular mountain that uh, many people believe is the real Mount Sinai. And after going uh, and doing a lot of research, I, I became thoroughly convinced, absolutely convinced that this is the real Mount Sinai. And as a result of this whole journey, the Lord really just had me parked for a few years in Exodus. And it was in studying the Exodus that numerous different pieces of the, I'll say, prophetic puzzle, but concerning the story, as you said, and when I say the story, the, triumph, the, the, the story of the return of Jesus, we're talking about the story of redemption in terms of the way the Lord has chosen to tell the story. You know, you have a story, I have a story, we all have a story. They're true stories. And the story of the return of Jesus, what I realized throughout the scriptures, is that it is communicated clearly throughout the Old Testament, and then later reflected in the New Testament, as the greater or the final exodus. The return of Jesus is framed as the ultimate final exodus, of which the original exodus obviously is a prototype or a pattern. And once you see that, once that becomes clear, you see it everywhere throughout the Bible, everywhere throughout the prophets, and it, it causes, again, the story of the return of Jesus 
as envisioned, as looked forward to by the prophets, to come alive in a profound, profound way. And so for this reason, I, I really feel as though this book is probably my most exciting, at least to me personally, spiritually, my most exciting book to date. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, I I was watching one of your uh, episodes on your YouTube channel, and you had mentioned something about it. And even even you you only said like a couple sentences about it at first because this was a while ago. But immediately, uh, I emailed you right away because it's that that's one of my most uh, you know one of the topics that excites me the most too as well about Bible prophecy because this is where it all culminates. And I uh, wanted to do this interview about this book. But what what's really amazing about your book and I. I highly suggest everybody go and pick it up, uh, is you really dig into the Old Testament to show that this story of the return of Jesus, uh, and what's astounding is there's such rich detail that many of us either breeze past or we aren't aware of, that by the time that you actually get to the New Testament in Revelation 19, you already know the details of the story, and Revelation is kind of a recap of what we've already learned in the Old Testament, yet many churches and prophecy teachers today will start with Revelation 19. Sometimes they stay there. If you're lucky, they'll work backwards a little bit, but a lot of times they'll just stay there and they don't venture out too much into the Old Testament. So with that approach, generally speaking, how much of this story are we missing out on here? I mean, we're missing most of it. Um, and th- there's, there's so many issues here. So Christians, obviously, we tend to have a very Gentile approach to reading the Bible. Um, We tend to have a very Christian approach to reading the Bible. You know, look, Josh, when I was 19 years old, I guess that's 30 years ago. um, Is that right? Yeah, I guess that's 30 years ago. uh, When I I came to faith, when I got saved, I was a stoner, and I opened up the Bible really for the first time. And what was the book that I opened right up to? The book of Revelation. And uh, there is a reason that the book of Revelation comes last in the Bible. Not only is it a difficult book, it's apocalyptic, it's filled with symbolism, but it is a book which is predicated upon, it is founded upon, just it's oozing with Old Testament references, citations, direct quotations, allusions, and sometimes more subtle echoes. But it's the crescendo at the end of the book for a reason. And if you want to properly understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand all of these preceding symbols, ideas, themes, and passages and concepts. Um, Otherwise, you're going to miss a lot. And what often happens is Christians, we have this very New Testament-centric perspective. We say, well, if it's not reiterated clearly in tremendous detail in the New Testament, then we don't take it as seriously. But Jesus and the apostles didn't have the New Testament. Their Bible was the Old Testament. And so oftentimes they didn't elaborate. They didn't reiterate in great detail all kinds of things because their Bible already laid this stuff out in great detail, right? Their Bible already did. So for them, they go, why would we need to repeat what has already been stated? So at times they just make references to things with the assumption that, uh, you know, their readers, again, which were predominantly Jewish, um, they already understood. They were Old Testament literate. They understood these things. So really what the book does is it goes back and it says, here's the foundation. Here's the backdrop. Here's the context of the ideas that the book of Revelation just assumes that it takes for granted. But we as Christians miss out on and we do. We miss out on a lot. 
Oh, definitely. And I mean, they're, they're, especially with the history, because that sets the foundation for the things that we read in Revelation. So let's start with a little history from context. The first part of your book deals with the marriage covenant at Mount Sinai. So how does this whole story begin? Yeah, so the way that I, um, the way that I tell it, first of all, let me just say this, that the story of the Exodus, which culminates with the covenant at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant, or the Covenant with Moses, or through Moses, we should say, um, that really serves as the foundation, uh, uh, the the looming, towering mountain at the beginning of the story for the whole story of redemption as told throughout the Bible. And so throughout the Passover, the Lord says, do these things, teach these things to your children so that you will not forget. Remember, 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 remember the things that I did when I led you out of Egypt with a mighty and outstretched arm. Remember the miracles. Remember the way I provided for you. Remember all of the mind-blowing, crazy, miraculous stuff that I did in order that you will believe the things that I've promised in the future will come to pass. And so our faith, for example, in the future return of Jesus, the the resurrection of the body, the end of this current wicked system, the renewal of all things of which all the prophets are talking about, our confidence in the future things is rooted in the historicity and our remembering of the former things. Okay, so you begin with you begin with the story of the Passover, the story of the Exodus, and then throughout the biblical prophets, They are pointing back, the biblical prophets are pointing back to the story of the Passover as a story of a romance and as the story of a marriage covenant that took took place at Mount Sinai. And the prophets use this language. They refer to Israel as married, as the the Lord, as Israel's husband. They say, it's not going to be like this in the future. No, it's going to be like this as it was back in the wilderness in the desert, i.e. the desert of the Exodus, and it uses the language of when you were a newlywed. Okay, so the prophets use the language of of the wedding, so that's clear. And so what I do in part one of the book is I work through all of the romance, marriage, and, and marriage covenant, or to be more specific, Josh, you could say betrothal, covenant uh, language because there's a there's a little bit of a difference there and I work through all of the primary themes and images and I show how a Jew would see all of these things you know how again an Old Testament literate Jew who understands a Jewish wedding how they would understand all of these things and then by understanding that that helps us to understand what's coming in the future which is the marriage supper of the lamb yeah, the whole marriage motif has uh, fascinated me since the first time I heard it, you know, five or six years ago. And, you know, since then, it's it's just been a matter of picking out these little pieces of it and learning more as we go along. But, um, you know, this brings us to Israel's restoration, you know, time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's regathering to the land, and e- even a marriage renewal. So h- how does that part of the story play out? So in order to understand the culmination of the biblical story of redemption, we have to understand that that story is fundamentally incomplete, not incomplete, but I mean, it's just, it's ripped out of context if it's not connected to, and if it doesn't revolve around the salvation of all Israel. Okay, much of the church today embraces replacement theology, so for them, this doesn't compute at all because they're so used to this sort of 
um, story of salvation that just is universal, um, which again, the gospel is for everyone, but the Lord has never done away with his original plan to use this people and this piece of property, this piece of land, the promised land, the, the chosen people and the promised land as the launching pad, as the, the springboard from which he would um, save a people out of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Okay, so it is both this exclusive and unique original calling on Israel, as well as the universal calling of the gospel to all people. Okay, so we have to understand that as Paul articulates in Romans 9 through 11, this calling has not been done away with. And so until all Israel is saved, um, the story of redemption is not complete. And so with that in mind, again, understanding the Sinaitic covenant as foundational, the Mosaic covenant as foundational for understanding all of these things, we have to begin by understanding this concept, the, the stipulations of the covenant, which are the curses or the blessings and the curses of the covenant. And so the blessings are very simple. They're like, you know, listen, if you obey, if you actually obey these things, and by the way, the Torah, these things, the commandments, the, the stipulations of the covenant, they are the wedding vows. They are, just think in modern times, I promise I'm going to lift the toilet seat. You know, all of the things that we, I, that's not usually part of the promise, but it's inferred um, in modern weddings. But the Torah itself, it's the ketubah. It's the legal agreement, right? And so the Lord says, if you live up to your part of the legal agreement, you'll be blessed. Your crops will be blessed. You'll have peace with your neighbors. You'll have security. And then ultimately at the center of it all, I will be your God. You will be my people. Okay. That's really what it all boils down to. I will be your God. You will be my people. But if they disobey, then you have not the blessings of the covenant, but the curses of the covenant, as I call them in the book the chastisements of the covenant, and the chastisements are laid out in the form of a cycle. The cycle begins with gradual calamities that increasingly get worse. They eventually lead to the breakdown, again, of their crops and their you know, animals and agriculture. But eventually they're invaded by the surrounding pagans. They're destroyed. They're defeated. And they're carried away as exiles and prisoners of war into the land of their enemies but then the Lord says, but after a while, because I'm not going to forget the covenant that I made with your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will give you a spirit of repentance and I'll bring you back to the land. Okay, so that's the covenant chastisement cycle. Now, of course, what's amazing, Josh, is the Lord laid that out all the way back in Deuteronomy, Leviticus. He lays it out in Moses, in Torah. Well, this has happened multiple times in Israel's history. It happened partially with the Assyrian invasion, destruction, and carrying away of the northern ten tribes. It had happened completely with the Babylonian invasion, destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah, and then their exile. Eventually, the Lord brought them back. It happened again partially with the invasion of Antiochus Epiphanes a couple hundred years before Jesus, and then it happened completely under the Romans beginning in 70 AD with the first Jewish revolt, the second Jewish revolt, the third Jewish revolt. Ultimately, after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, the Romans pretty much uh, just removed all of the Jews from not just Judah, but all of the land. And then after 2,000 years, they were eventually brought back from exile back into the land. However, 
the Bible is very clear that that cycle will happen one last time, one ultimate time, and this time the return to the land. It will not be as it was more recently, which is to say that it was primarily more so a secular Jewish nationalist return to the land. This time it will happen in the context of all of those that remain, all of the survivors of this cycle, this chastisement cycle, they will repent and they will turn to the Lord fully. And it will not just be, again, a national return to the land, but it will actually be led by Jesus himself, uh, Yehovah in the flesh, having come back, the eternal God-man coming back from heaven, the bridegroom God of Sinai will personally lead his people back to the land. And so it is the it's the time of Jacob's trouble, that the great tribulation, it, Jacob, that's Israel's trouble, Israel's chastisement. It will also be Israel's final renewal, and it will be not just the betrothal ceremony, it will be the culmination, it will be the marriage renewal, and then, of course, the enthronement of the King Messiah on Mount Zion. All of these things that the Bible's talking about, it culminates. All of the components of the story are all there. And then, of course, we, who are Gentiles, who are Christians, we will be part of this whole process. We've been grafted in. We get to witness it with our glorified, resurrected eyeballs. <laughs> We're actually part of the armies of the Lord, and, and uh, it's an absolutely dynamic, vibrant, beautiful picture. And I cannot wait for that. Uh, and, and that leads us to the, the actual specifics of the triumphal return of Jesus. And there's a lot that we could uh, talk about here, but let's start with the location, because this is probably one of the, one of the more um, uh, interesting things to me. I, I always find it interesting when I've been taught something, you know, a certain way, and I don't really question it, or I don't really even think to question it, because, you know, I kind of read something, and it seems to say what I think it means, and I don't really look at it word for word. I just kind of look at the ideas, and then I move on. Uh, and so what's really great about this is the location of Jesus' return is not as black and white as we tend to think it is. Uh, so where does Jesus actually return? Because most say the Mount of Olives, but you actually present a really convincing case uh, that it's actually Mount Sinai. So uh, what led you to that belief? So believe it or not, I actually argue in the book that he very – I'm not dogmatic about where he returns, but he will certainly pass through Sinai. I actually argue that he very well may return to Egypt. And one of the famous passages that most people know is Isaiah 19, behold, the Lord comes on a swift cloud and he's coming to Egypt. But I cite several other passages that seems to indicate that he will actually, when he returns – when Jesus returns, he will retrace the entirety of the route of the Exodus, that he'll actually split the sea again, the Red Sea again. Um, but in the process of this, he clearly will pass through Mount Sinai. He will, and he's doing this as he's collecting his people that have either fled into the wilderness, into the desert, or who have been taken as prisoners of war in this final period of the uh, occupate the invasion and the occupation of Israel by the Antichrist and his armies. And there is a procession from Sinai to Zion, thus the title of the book, From Sinai to Zion, or just Sinai to Zion. And um, yeah, I mean, there are just numerous, numerous passages that talk about this. Now, Zechariah 12 
as well as Acts 1. Those are the two texts that most people are a look at to arrive at this idea that, the, that Jesus um, lands on the Mount of Olives. Well, I, it's funny, in, in conferences I say, um, you all are very familiar with the passage in Zechariah that says Jesus will land on the Mount of Olives. And everyone goes, yes, I know that. And I go, actually, it doesn't say that. It says, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. So everyone looks at this statement and they go, oh, well, it says, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. It must be that particular day. Well, again, this phrase, this term, this expression in that day is not referring to that specific day, but it's that time period. Because when you read the larger context of Zechariah 12, it says that um, there will be a mighty earthquake in that day. Now, we know there's going to be multiple earthquakes in that final period, but the ultimate devastating earthquake seems to take place when Jesus returns. Okay, so the general resurrection of the dead. Um, when you look in the Gospels, you see that there was a mighty earthquake on the day that Jesus was resurrected, not just on the day that he died, but also when he came back from the dead, there was also an earthquake. And I believe, uh, and this gets into stuff that you'd probably have talked about a lot, but I believe that when the power of God is released to raise a body unto immortality, as with the first fruits, with Jesus, it shook the earth. Mm-hmm. There is a physical power. You know, let's, I don't know what to call it. We don't understand the physics of it. Um, we don't have scientists that can necessarily explain it, but there is probably a measurable physical power that shakes the earth. Because mind you, you know, you can look at a charismatic video of a Christian being prayed for and being overwhelmed with emotion and shaking and saying, well, that's just emotion. That person got caught up in the emotion. Well, the dirt around the vicinity, the rocks that shook, they were not overwhelmed with emotion on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, right? There is a physical power that was released that shakes the earth. Well, likewise, think about the day when multiplied millions all over the earth are raised from the dead. There is going to be a mighty earthquake on that day. Okay, so you've got the the earthquake, of course, the, the, the beginnings of that, you see it back in the Exodus at Mount Sinai, you see the earthquake. But when he returns, there's going to be a mighty earthquake as well. And I got off on a tangent. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> what was my point? <laughs> oh, no problem. Yeah, I was just asking you, uh, like, w- w- what is it about uh, Sinai? Because a lot of people think Mount of Olives, but they're reading, you know, an, an interpretation into that that m- might not be there because it specifically, it, it says in that day his feet will stand. It doesn't say at that specific time of his return, he's going to descend and land on the Mount of Olives. Uh, so so there's this, this idea of a procession from somewhere, you know, Sinai or Egypt, somewhere there, and there there's this procession thing uh, happening. So here's the thing is when when you read Zechariah, it says it's going to be a mighty earthquake. The Mount of Olives splits. Half of it goes to the north. Half goes to the south. And then it says, and then you will flee by my valley, as it was in the days of Uzael. So you go, if the passage is saying that Jesus landed on the Mount of Olives and the mountain splits, why are the people that he has just come back to save If the Savior and the Deliverer has just come back to save them from the occupying forces of the Antichrist, why are they fleeing? (laughs) 
That's a problem. It doesn't really make sense unless you understand that Zechariah is not making a series of chronologically sequenced statements. Rather, he's making a series of generalized statements. And then a few verses later, it says, and then the Lord my God will come and all of his holy ones with him. So it's after they flee that he then comes with this great procession with all of his holy ones and those that fled because he picks them up on the way and he brings them back. So he certainly gets to Mount Zion. He certainly gets to the Mount of Olives, but I don't believe he lands on the Mount of Olives. I believe that there is, as you said, this procession beforehand that leads to the Mount of Olives. So he begins as the greater Moses, as he is affecting the greater Exodus. He begins in the south. He begins at Sinai, and he makes his way up to the Mount of Olives, up to Mount Zion. Yeah, that, that that's so cool. And so when we think about like what the actual return looks like, because I, I know some people are going to be thinking, well, hold on a minute, because he said, hey, if that if that's if they say that's me coming from the desert, that's not me because I'm going to return in this way. So are we still looking forward to Jesus returning, like descending from uh, heaven and it's going to be this big spectacle that everybody's going to be able to see somehow? Or, or like what what is the actual return like prior to the procession going to going to be like in, in your So what Jesus was saying when he made those statements, he goes, if you hear he's in the inner rooms, if you hear he's out in the desert, do not go after him. What he was addressing was insurrectionist Messiah figures of the first century. False. Most of the Messiahs in the first century were insurrectionists. They were modeling themselves after Joseph Maccabeus. This was still fresh in the mind of the Israelites you know, uh, memory is, was this, this strong man that rose up and cast off the, uh, the Greeks that cast off Antiochus and the, um, the Seleucids. Okay. So they were looking for a similar figure. He goes, look, no, he goes, the Messiah is not going to come. Like you really have to pay attention. Otherwise you might miss it. Like, so if there's some whispering, Hey, we, we found the Messiah. He's, he has a meeting in the inner rooms or he's, he's out there in the desert gathering together people. You know, psst, did you hear about this? He goes, don't go after me. He goes, no, listen, when the Messiah comes, it is going to be unmistakable. He goes, it's like when the lightning flashes from one end of the sky to the other, it's going to be obvious. And then he usually, he makes the statement. He says, where the vultures, where the bodies are, there the vultures will gather. That's a, a, a statement, an expression that uh, it baffles a lot of interpreters. But all he was doing is reiterating the same statement over again. When you see vultures flying around in the sky, you can see them from a distance. What does it mean? It means there's bodies, there's carcasses. It doesn't mean, hey, guys, guess what? The carnival's in town. Did you see the vultures? You know, it, it doesn't um, there's a football game today. No, it means one thing. It's obvious. You can see it from the distance. So he goes, he gives two analogies. He goes, like when the lightning flashes across that, you can't miss it. It's unmistakable. And then he uses the vulture statement. And then he says for the kingdom of God. And then the King James translation says is inside of you. Well, that's a horrible translation. And other translations say it is in the midst of you. But most people interpret that statement wrongly to say that the kingdom of God is this invisible, mystical, invisible reality within us. But what Jesus was saying goes, no, 
But the kingdom of God doesn't come with careful observation. Like if you don't listen to just the right YouTube video, you might miss it. No, he goes, it's in your face. It's like right in front of you. It's brazen. It's obvious. It's unmistakable. He's going to come back in blazing fire in the clouds with lightning. You know, so this is the point. So here's the thing is in the final appendix, and I don't know if you read the final appendix yet, Josh, but I deal with the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. And I argue, um, and this comes from a good friend of mine, some awesome theological conversations that we had, and I have to give him credit. But I argue, and and I think is a very strong biblical case, that when he comes back, yes, he's going to come back in anthropomorphic form, in the form of a man, the son of man, Daniel 7, on the clouds, as Christians imagine it, but he's not going to come back on in a blue sky, on white fluffy clouds, as Christian art often portrays it. He's going to come back in storm clouds, in thunder and lightning, like the sky is going to be dark, the moon is going to be like blood, the sun goes dark, okay? So we've got indications that there is catastrophic, um, you know, storm cloud type of atmosphere. But also, as it says in Zechariah, in the concluding chapters of Zechariah, they will look upon the one they have pierced. And there is something specific, okay? The Christians will recognize, oh, here's Jesus in anthropomorphic form, but the Jews will specifically recognize him. Now, the Jews aren't going to look up and say, oh, you know, there's the Caucasian hippie from California that all the Christians have been putting in their art. That must be the Messiah. You know, I've seen him in the Christian icons and paintings. No, there's something definitively specific that will cause the Jews to recognize him. And so I argue that throughout the story of the, of the Bible— the definitive manifestation, the definitive form, the definitive manner in which Yahweh God Almighty has always uh, shown up and appeared to his people is in the pillar of cloud. It's in the cloud, in the glory, and the fire. That's how he led them, and that is the definitive sign. And when you look at the passages that Jesus cites when he talks about his own return, when you look at the variations in the Gospels, a really solid case can be made that the sign of the Son of Man that Jesus refers to is the descent of the pillar of cloud and that all of the Jews will recognize, indeed, this is Yahweh, this is Yehovah um, that, that saved us in the time of the Exodus and now he's coming back to save us once again in our darkest hour. But they will also recognize that he's that there he is in the pillar, in the cloud, that it is this anthropomorphic man, just like those pesky, dumb Gentile Christians have been saying all along, and their minds will be jostled to uh, Daniel 7. Then I saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, and the penny will drop, you know, the revelation will click, and they will recognize that the same God that promised to come back to save them throughout the Old Testament is indeed the same one that these crazy Gentiles have been talking about all along. And then, of course, when he actually saves them, then that really seals the deal. But that will be the revelation. That will be the opening of the revelation for the Jewish people. 
Phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, so after he returns, we have this time of this procession. And, and what can we learn from the Old Testament about this procession? Are we involved in this? Uh, there, there's a bunch of passages about it that often get attributed to uh, the, the, the first, the, the, the Exodus. But it, it, a lot of these are probably prophetic, and you go through a lot of them in, in a presentation that I saw you do online. Um, what are some of these Old Testament references to this procession? What, what, is, it, what is the purpose of it, uh, and what's our role as Christians in this thing? Well, Paul says that when he is revealed from heaven, apocalypsis, right? When he is revealed from heaven, we will be revealed with him. Okay, so we'll be with him. Those of us who are believers in Christ and Messiah and Jesus now, we will be with him. Uh, the scriptures are also clear that the armies of heaven, the angels, will be with him. So this is already becoming quite a party. Uh, we've got the angels. We've got the resurrected believers. We've got the the Old Testament believers. The Old Testament saints will be resurrected, right? They're, they'll be given glorified resurrected bodies when he comes back. Um, so in terms of the, the passages, I'm actually going to do it in reverse order. Sure. We already looked at Zechariah. Mm -hmm. Zechariah says, and then the Lord my God will come and all of his holy ones with him. Well, we have a few critical motifs or themes in that statement. The Lord, okay, Yehovah, Yahweh, my God will come. He will come. That statement come is repeated throughout the Old Testament narrative and he comes with his holy ones. Okay, so with his, the armies of heaven and most often, Isaiah, all the prophets, they repeatedly use another statement. He comes with judgment, retribution, or punishment for the wicked. And he comes with rewards or recompense for the righteous. Okay? So these are the primary things. God comes with his holy ones, with judgment, punishment for the wicked, rewards for the righteous. We all as Christians know without any question that Zechariah is talking about Jesus and the return of Jesus. So there's a hermeneutical principle here. The New Testament writers, whenever they look to an Old Testament passage that portrays God Almighty, Yahweh, in anthropomorphic form, coming in judgment or coming to save his people, the New Testament writers always interpret those passages as talking about the return of Jesus. In Matthew 16, verse 27, that's the first verse in the New Testament that talks about the return of Jesus. Jesus says this. He says, when the Son of Man, again, that's the main passage he's always alluding to, Daniel chapter 7, he says, when the Son of Man will come in his Father's glory, this is another important theme or motif, he comes in radiant, shining glory. We'll get to that. He says, with all of his holy ones with him, um, then he will... Um, sit on his throne of glory, which is, or his glorious throne, which is the throne of his father, David. Now, here's what's interesting, is what Jesus is doing is he is connecting. And in fact, Daniel 7 does the same thing. He is connecting two threads, two prophetic threads that run throughout the Old Testament. There is the classic messianic thread that most Christian or most Christians who are Old Testament literate, they're familiar with. You've got the seed of Eve, the crushing one, Genesis 3.15. He will crush the head of the serpent. He will crush the head of Satan. The seed of Eve, the promised one, the crushing one. Later we learn that the seed of Abraham and the seed of Eve is the same one. 
And it's this seed of Abraham, the promised seed of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In Genesis 49, we learn that he's coming from the line of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Later, we learn in 2 Samuel 7 that he is the seed of David. He will rule on the throne of his father, David. So he's a very specific individual. We see him in Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. We see it in Psalm 2, etc. All of the classic messianic prophecies, you have this man because he's born of a woman. He's, he's the seed of Eve. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the seed of David. And then in, um, in Luke, right, he's the seed of, of uh, Mary, little Miriam. Okay, so we know he's a human. But then you have this other prophetic thread that also says God will come. Yehovah, Yahweh will come. Well, that's a little bit different. He comes in the clouds with his armies. And so on one hand, you have God Almighty who's promised multiple prophecies say he's going to come back and save his people. On the other hand, you have this promise of this man, the seed of a woman who's coming. He's the Messiah. He's the Mashiach. And so where do those two threads eventually intertwine? Ultimately, it's in Daniel 7. Because there is one like a son of man, like he looks like a, a, a human, but yet he's riding on the clouds and only Yahweh rides on the clouds. So that, that is an integral thing. And then the New Testament mixes them all together as it should, because the Old Testament has already done that. Daniel, who is a later prophet, mixes them together and he goes, guess what? The, and and in, in that is a hint of the fact that there are two comings because you have to be born of a woman. And then he comes back from heaven. Okay, so that's not a New Testament concept. So this idea of, of him, that the foundation passage is Deuteronomy 33. This is called the blessing of Moses. It's the, found, it's the prophetic foundation for all of these passages. And in that it says God comes from Sinai, the Holy One from Mount Paran, and he's shining forth. Well, that's that imagery. It's the language of the rising of the sun, the dawning of the sun. It's radiating forth from the south, and it names these places, Seir, Paran, Sinai, all places that are to the south. Well, it's, it's, um, it's, it's shocking. It's unusual because the sun rises where? The sun rises in the east. Well, here... The rays of the Lord himself are shining from the south, and he's marching, he's coming, he's proceeding from the south. And then later in Deuteronomy 33, verse, I think, 27, it says, there is none like the God of Jeshurun, which Jeshurun is a pet name for Israel. So there is none, there is no one like the God of Israel. And it says, who rides uh, across the heavens, who comes on the clouds to save you. Some translations say he rides the deserts. Either way, he is the cloud rider. He is the desert marcher. He is portrayed in the form of a man shooting lightning out of his hands, Deuteronomy 33, marching through the desert, saving his people, leading his people. Well, traditional scholars, they go, well, this is just a flamboyant, overly dramatized, poetic description of the Exodus. We know God didn't literally march before Israel in the form of a man. We know he led them in the form of the pillar of cloud, right? And I go, no, 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 no. Deuteronomy 33 is prophetic, and it is speaking literally of, yes, it's using poetic language, but it's speaking of the return of Jesus when he will literally march before his people, and that is exactly how the New Testament interprets Deuteronomy 33, Judges 5, Habakkuk 3. 
Psalm 68, Isaiah 63. Who is this marching up from Edom with his robe soaked in blood, right? Zechariah chapter 9, Isaiah, all of these passages about making a highway through the desert, preparing the way of the Lord, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 40, 42, on and on. Zechariah 9, he marches in the storm winds, the whirlwinds of the south. And then, of course, Isaiah 12, then the Lord my God will come. And then we see it clearly in the New Testament in Jude, verse 14 and 15, then the Lord my God will come and all of his holy ones with him. And he's executing judgment against the wicked and um, punishing the, the, all of the wicked for all of the proud and harsh words they have spoken against, etc., etc. Everyone knows that's talking about the return of Jesus. Everyone knows Zechariah is talking about the return of Jesus. Everyone knows Isaiah when he says, the Lord will come in blazing fire, dealing out punishment against the wicked and retribution for the right. Everyone knows that's talking about the return of Jesus. And scholars will often admit that Habakkuk 3 is talking about the return of Jesus. Um, but when you get to Deuteronomy 33, um, Psalm 68, they get lost. They get really confused. But it's clear they're all part of this same prophetic tradition, the same well. And this is the well that we're drawing from um, in part three of the book. And this is the part that I get the most excited about. Yes, absolutely. Me too. Uh, and it's, it's phenomenal to think like how real this is. And this is literally our future. Like this is what we have to look forward to. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. Jesus is, is absolutely amazing. Um, I want to, I want to ask you about the defeat of Leviathan because you write about this as well in your book. But for that, we're going to do that in the members only section. So before we get to members only, uh, where can people find your books and follow you online? Okay. So, um, I've got the book at, as a Kindle on Amazon. I've also got it for free as a PDF file on my website, which is joelstrumpet.com. If you just want to read it for free online, I give everything away for free. If you want to buy the book, um, uh, I'm someone that, you know, when the lights go out, I, I, the end times are here. I want my hard copies. <laughs> if you're someone that likes books like I like books, um, I'm going to only sell the hardcover on my website through my store for probably the first year. I'm tired of just giving everything away to Amazon. I don't care about ratings. Um, so that's joelstrumpet.com. Click on the store. And when you buy it through the store, they're all signed. So um, the books will be in the warehouse in the middle of October, probably October 15th. We should have them. So if, you listen, if you're listening to this October 15th or thereafter, they're ready. And as I said, they're all signed. So you can get an extra 35 cents for them on eBay. Fantastic. Okay, we are going to get to the members-only section of the show. If you are not a member, if you're viewing now and if you're not a member uh, yet, head on over to dailyrenegade.com and get a membership today where we will be talking more with Joel about the defeat of Leviathan and uh, and so much more. So uh, you're not going to want to miss out on that. Members, hang on the line and everyone viewing for free, thank you so much. And until next time, take care and God bless. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.